Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director back from Davos with a wealth of things to discuss. And the things we're talking about this morning are very much part of them. We're going to be looking at the deployment of Western battle tanks to Ukraine, specifically the importance placed on the Leopard 2 tank and the contentious diplomacy we've seen this week to put pressure on Germany into allowing its export. So what is this going to mean uh, for Ukraine and for the Russian offensive expected in the spring? We're also, after that, going to be discussing the role of Germany in Europe and the pressure its foreign policy has been under since the invasion of Ukraine started what its relations with the US are like, how its standing has changed over the last year, and what are the challenges facing the country as a long and cold winter sets in for relations with Russia and Vladimir Putin. Joining me down the line from Berlin this week to help get a sense on both these huge questions is Jeremy Cliff, writer-at-large for The New Statesman. Welcome. Hi, Roman. Great to have you with us. And we've got lots of people in the studio this week. Orisia Lutsevich, the head of our Ukraine forum, returning after you first heard her all the way back in episode one. Hi again. Good to be back with you, Brian. Joining us as well is Ed Arnold, a research fellow for European security at the Royal United Services Institute. Great to have you, Ed. Hello, and thank you for the invite. Last but not least is Marian Mesmer, a senior research fellow in the International Security Programme here at Chatham House. Welcome to the podcast, Marian. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. Well, I can't think of a better lineup of guests to plunge into these questions. So let's start with the topic that is very much in the news at the moment, the Leopard 2 tanks for Ukraine and the wider issues around supplying advanced main battle tanks to Ukraine's forces. Jeremy, the story broke about 24 hours ago that Berlin is now authorising the permits for the exports to Ukraine of these tanks. Can you just tell us a bit about the debate in Berlin on this question? Sure. Well, this goes back all the way pretty much to the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine almost a year ago. It was only eight days after that that Ukraine first uh, requested Western tanks. Um, And since then, its calls have become um, firmer and, I think, to many in the West, more compelling. So that's the story of the last 11 months, if you will. And it's always been a story that concerns Germany particularly, because the variety of tanks that Ukraine wants are leopards. They were developed by the West German military during the Cold War. A lot of European militaries have them in their arsenals. Um, and so they are tanks that can be sent in large numbers and that can be um, repaired and training can be done within on this side of the Atlantic. Um, but I think um, Ed will probably speak a bit more about, about that. Um, I was just going to so ask these you, are, actually, just to, just to come in at that point and just tell us why this tank is so significant. So in terms of the Y Leopard, it is availability. There's approximately 2,000 across Europe by 13 allies. I mean, no one would really know the true number of that because obviously serviceability and actually getting those tanks to combat readiness um, is usually quite difficult. Um, And also it's still in production, so it can be backfilled, I mean, around 70 a year. So that will have to significantly increase going forward. And what is it that that it can do that makes it so valuable to Ukraine? Well, it's not necessarily just the Leopard. It's about main battle tanks in general. The main change of the Leopard over the M1 is the logistics burden of um, operating it. But the main issue with Western main battle tanks versus Russian tanks is that they're more stable, so they can fire on the move. They have better optics that they can be used at night, and they have better command and control systems. So in terms of firepower, maneuverability, and protection, they're just far superior. Thank you for that. Jeremy, sorry, I cut you off in, in flow as you were No, no, that was a very, a very 
apt intervention uh, just there. So the, these tanks are, um, they're, they're a German model of tank. The Germans have them in their arsenals, others do too, but Germany also has control over re-exporting rules under under its export licenses. So this was always a question for Germany. And, um, you know, it, it came up relatively early as well. I mean, the, back in June last year, Spain moved to send some of its leopards um, to Ukraine, but was blocked by Berlin. And Ukraine brought this back to the surface again in November, really pushing more publicly for Berlin to shift on this, expressing its disappointment. Over the autumn, um, the US insisted that it wouldn't have a problem with that. In fact, it would approve this move. But Germany, throughout that period, and up to very recently, um, clung to this, um, re this, this, this reluctance to, as they put it, go it alone, um, which was never entirely accurate, as I think I've shown, but it was, it was this fear of being seen to act unilaterally that was holding Germany back. Perhaps we can get onto that in greater detail in a bit. But just to bring us up to the current day, you know, the new year, there is a lot of talk about new spring offensives, both by the Russians and by the Ukrainians. It's clear that the Ukrainians need the tanks to punch through the Russian lines. Um, and this all came to a head at a summit in at the Ramstein military base, which is a US military base in Western Germany, last week, as we record this. And I think a, a sense of growing frustration among Germany's allies that it was not it was not budging. Uh, the I, Poles I'm, I'm going to come on to that, that point. Uh, mm. I heard a lot in Davos about the US frustration with Germany saying, look, mm. we really want you to step up and pay more and do more about defence. Marion, just your thoughts on this this debate that Jeremy's been describing for us within Germany and what it's meant for Olaf Scholz. Mm. So Olaf Scholz had faced a really difficult time in his chancellorship pretty much right from the start. Um, so there is a lot of support in Germany for Ukraine. Um, the great majority of Germans think that the Russian offensive has been completely wrong on all levels. Um, and um, it really has tapped into a lot of the traditional peace sentiment in Germany, actually, in a way that a lot of people weren't expecting. So um, about just, a... Just explain that to yeah. us. A peace sentiment, and yet this is a war. S sorry, of course. Yeah. So, um, so uh, Germany's historic baggage essentially has been that since the end of the Second World War, um, there has been this really strong sentiment among German politicians, the German public, um, that something like World War II can never happen again. Um, and that has expressed itself in a, a really strong pacifism. So that means um, when you look at debates in the German Bundestag, um, that there's always a lot of conflict and contentiousness about things like arms exports, uh, military support. So... Um, I think any German party would have found that very difficult. Um, Angela Merkel would have found that very difficult, but um, particularly because the SPD has a has a history of being quite close to Russia, um, that has been particularly difficult for Olaf Scholz and his party has a lot of baggage in that regard as well. Arisia, how much does this matter to Ukraine? Well, danke schön. This was the answer that uh, was all over Ukrainian social media after the decision was taken. What is important to understand that this was such a society-wide advocacy for the provision of those uh, uh, heavy weapons for Ukraine because Ukraine uh, bravely resists but also is losing men on the battlefield and is Russia has still advantage in numbers that is able to send to uh, deaths and it 
it's not hesitating to do it. Uh, so we are in this very dangerous moment uh, of war where Russia is not changing its uh, war aims. Obviously, it wants to take more Ukrainian territory. It wants to take whole of Donbass and perhaps threaten from the north and from the south. So um, there's a, they are mounting a man and armor. So Ukraine needs to also strengthen its uh, not only uh, offenses, but also defenses, because this is where where uh, the key of this uh, campaign is to prove that Russia cannot take more Ukrainian land. And even Ukraine can maintain this um, strategic uh, initiative that it uh, took uh, back from the Russian armed forces from, I would say, summer of, of last year. You put it very well, but what people might say is, look, you're describing a stalemate. Um, uh, the, the, the West, the US in particular, is, 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 is feeding in more powerful weapons, um, just enough to keep alive the hope uh, that Ukraine can push Russia back, but, um, but not enough yet certainly for a decisive victory. And, and what you've just described is Ukraine, as you said, very, on the defensive as well as the offensive. Ed, just, you know, is this a stalemate we're looking at? And what, what difference do these particular uh, heavy weapons make? No, I, I disagree that it's a stalemate. I think where we are in the war, um, weather conditions obviously affects that. I think we're always going to see a lull in fighting. And what is the most important part of, on both sides now is how quickly and how best they can regenerate their capability. So it's all about making... Um, gains versus your adversary so as long as Ukraine can gain more than Russia I mean Russia will strengthen strengthen defensive positions it has its mobilization but I think Ukraine are certainly in a good good place to mount a proper counteroffensive um, come spring when uh, weather conditions allow what the tanks will allow them to do specifically is to punch through Russian lines. And actually what we saw in September with the dual uh, counteroffensives, firstly, which was very heavily telegraphed in Kherson to the south, but also in the east, which was actually far more militarily significant. They probed the line and they got lucky with a breakthrough. What tanks allow you, you don't necessarily need that look. The tanks can then be broken through. And as soon as they got behind uh, Russian lines, they, uh, you know, took out uh, about four months of Russian territorial gains within about two weeks. Um, so I think that's what the tanks will allow them to do on the ground. The key issue for Ukraine is how do they use these tanks? Do they put them straight into the fight as soon as they're available in the east? Do they keep them back and train them at a higher formation in combined arms manoeuvre so that they can really put in something, you know, a, a thrust in the summer perhaps? So still a lot of riding on how Ukraine will actually use the tanks once they get them. And Brondon, if I may just um, put one number for our listeners. I mean, General Zaluzhny in his interview for The Economist said for Ukraine to defend and to reclaim its territory, it needs 300 tanks roughly of a new delivery. And now we have the combined coalition of this Leopard 2 at around 80. So, right, this is Ukraine will need much more and Ukraine will need also the fighter jets. And this is the next step that are needed to protect these tanks. I was going to ask you what the next demand would be because obviously President Zelensky is making eloquently uh, many demands as he did by video link to, to, to Davos and his wife in person did saying you are not doing enough so alright fighter jets and more tanks to come Marion do you agree with, with what Ed has just said that this is not a stalemate uh, Ukraine does have the upper hand um, I mean I, I think so um, and the the main advantage that Ukraine has is is the morale of Ukrainian fighters um, and the international support, because what we've seen um, with Russia is that Russia increasingly um, is backed into a corner internationally, a corner of its own making. 
and um, and Russians, you know, it's not clear to what extent Russians support the war. We've seen many men um, flee the country during the mobilization. And I think if Putin were to try to step up mobilization significantly again, we would probably see a similar exodus. So I think that's going to increasingly be the big problem um, for Russia and a huge advantage for Ukraine. Jeremy, what do you make of the US strategy in this? It's been keen to avoid escalation, to avoid a direct conflict between Russia uh, and NATO, and yet has been, as these long months have gone by, raising uh, and encouraging allies to raise the, 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 the uh, lethal uh, nature of the, of the arms supplied. Um, and the US, I talk to many militaries, seem more confident to me than you hear in, in Europe about the ability to defeat the Russian army. Where, where do you think the US is in this? I think the US has been more confident and clearer in its position than than, than the Europeans from the very start. You know, it, it has given them the vast majority of the, or, or far more military and other forms of aid, aid than any other state. And, um, you know, they've made it clear that they want the, the, the Europeans to step up. And that was one of the reasons why they were very clearly signaling to Olaf Scholz, even in the autumn, that we want you to move on, on these tanks and take some initiative. You know, the Europeans need to um, deliver more of the security on their own continent. Um, now, I think what have to see how the diplomatic ramifications play out but Schultz insisted on US tanks as part of this tank coalition he's clearly concerned about escalation he's worried about the nuclear threat um, as well as those sort of public um, opinion elements that we've heard about already um, and so I think rather reluctantly the US were, were, were pulled into sending their tanks as well um, but of course that does make for a, for a yet more formidable contingent of, of, of those weapons that will make their way to Ukraine over the next months. Europe, of course, is um, is grappling with high gas prices in a way that the U.S. has has not been as hit more directly uh, as is the, the the Middle East and parts of Africa. Um, Ursula von der Leyen, head uh, of the European Commission, has made a big deal of saying, "Look, we have got gas prices down to you know below the where they were at the start of the invasion," which is true. But then you get a lot of people saying more cautiously, "But what about the winter after the one we're in now?" Yes, and if if I may briefly. I think I think we will see more fractures grow this year. I mean, the big story of last year, and you will have heard this in Davos, no doubt, was the surprising resilience of the Western alliance. But I do think this year, with this question of energy costs, with um, industrial policy, the um, Inflation Reduction Act in the US, other questions like the future of the Ukraine war, China, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we got to the end of the year with, with, a, with a lot more between the Europeans and the Americans. But, yeah. but we'll see. Davos is not somewhere you go to hear that fractures in the Western Alliance are, are advertised, but there was a distinct difference no. between the US and European countries and then between them, Marion. And what I think is also really interesting here is that you, you can see from how Olaf Scholz is acting that he is really worried about his low approval rating, about German public opinion. But at the same time, um, this tank decision was made over such a long time period, which actually um, worsened his standing in Germany. Uh, Germans wanted a much quicker, much more decisive decision on it. And then on some of these other issues that we've just heard, you know, energy prices, German energy security, his government has also been rather slow and rather ineffective. One of the really striking opinion polling numbers that I saw was that um, nearly 80% of Germans agree that his government is ineffective in communicating with them. And I think that's going to be their big problem because uh, that's that's what made it very difficult for them internationally as well. So as we begin to look forward in this, uh, obviously enormous amount of uncertainty uh, in this, but Ed, I want to pick up the 
degree of optimism, if you like, you're saying that this is not a stalemate. What would you look for next to judge whether Russia really is on the back foot and whether people might even then begin to talk about what the outcome of all this would be? Just firstly, on the last point that Marion made is I'd absolutely agree on the comms issue. The Schultz Chancellery has a real comms issue, both externally and internally, and they need to sort that out immediately. It's not necessarily a question of strategy. Um, but then, I, By issue, you mean problem? Yes. As, as I urge people at Chatham House to, to, to call it. Uh, yes, it's an, a, a, and it's a pretty deep problem, I, I think. Um, but in, in terms of the optimism on the battlefield, like I said, I mean, Ukraine, you know, at the moment, Russia can... or currently occupies about 20% of Ukrainian territory so in terms of territorial like that doesn't fit either what Ukraine or Russia want it, it, so that has to move one way or the other but Ukraine has been preparing for this counteroffensive and the entire point of the counteroffensives that they managed in September was say that you know we can do the job we just need the tools and this is really the um transatlantic community showing well, we'll give you the tools and yes we focus on germany uk poland sort of the big hitters actually what you're seeing is you know from denmark from the netherlands they are putting in a serious amount of kit especially in terms of the baltic so as long as this support continues and it, it will at least for 2023 and things go well for ukraine then we could move to a more decisive point but i also remind people that this was been going on for nine years now not one mm. uh, and it could have a lot longer to go a really important reminder, and many, many wars are longer than we choose to think that they are. Arisia, what are you looking for? Uh, since since you are looking for precision and words, Bronwyn, I think there's another word, which is Schulting, that emerged uh, after Schulting. this indecisiveness, where you basically communicate good intent and understand the importance, but uh, use all the imaginable and unimaginable reasons to basically prevent from taking a, a right decision. And I think it's we, it's time to stop Schulting. It's time to actually for Germany to show that leadership that must come in this critical time of these risks of rupture of the uh, of the unity, I, I would say mostly within, of course, European Union. And the big elephant in the room is uh, would a, a peace settlement where Ukraine loses some of its territory be a sustainable peace? And President Steinmeier actually uh, put it very potently in his address to German nation that it would not be a, a just uh, and sustainable peace that Russians must withdraw from or be defeated on Ukrainian territory. Nobody threatens Russian. Everybody knows what are Russian regally recognized borders. And I think it's the world and Europe needs to hear that also from Chancellor Scholz, what it means, uh, the victory for all Europeans, not just for Ukraine. Well, that's going to take us on to this wider question of Germany's role in Europe. Scholzing, not to be confused, of course, with Merkling, mm -hmm. which is uh, in the English idiom to kick the can down the road, which we're not going to do. Let's uh, turn to Germany's role more widely. And Jeremy, I wonder if you could take us into this. It's been a very interesting, not very comfortable period for Germany, including in Europe, including um, with relations with France. That's right. And relations between Paris and Berlin haven't been good for a while. I mean, one can go back decades and talk about problems in the relationship. So I'm always a little bit sceptical when, when people talk about the crisis of Franco-German relations. But it, it clearly is bad, worse than usual at the moment. Um, various issues. There was a gas pipeline dispute. The um, French didn't like the way the Germans unilaterally bailed out their industries with the energy price crisis. Um, a summit between the two governments due for October was, was cancelled. And they ended up meeting only last Sunday, as we record this, for the 60th anniversary 
anniversary of the Elysee Treaty. Um, there are also, I think, personal tensions between Macron and Schultz, who in some ways are are all too similar as leaders um, and and um, quite quite ego driven men who don't like being told that they're wrong. Um, but I do think that there's this broader picture, which is that the Franco-German relationship isn't what it was within Europe. It was, you know, when it was when the Elysee Treaty of between the two countries, between West Germany and France, was signed in 1963. They were two thirds of the then European Community in, in GDP, and that's just not the Europe we're in anymore. It's multi, it's polycentric, it's bigger, it's broader. Um, you need to 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 to, to kind of mould broader coalitions on specific topics. And I think that the, the, we're in this sort of valley of death almost where the Franco-German engine is is big, is big enough to stall things or to block things, but not big enough to take take the initiative or or, or, or create a coalition on its own. Um, so I think it's 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 a problem, and I don't I don't see it improving over the course of the year actually, um, because I think I think um, both have domestic um, challenges to face. The economy is in a difficult place, um, and I think we actually do need some of these other European states to step up and help form those coalitions. So including Britain outside the EU, um, but also we've seen Spain grow in influence recently. Um, Poland and Italy, it's more complicated because they're both governed by Eurosceptic um, parties. Um, but it's got to be more than just France or Germany, I think. Really interesting point, which, which it is possible that um, both of those governments don't um, either understand in quite that way or put in, in quite that point. Um, Marion, what does this mean for Merkel's Legacy? Does it really feel to you as if Merkel, uh, you know, and that era is in the past? We're now in a very different set of relationships. Angela Merkel was Chancellor for a very long time, and in a sense, at a very different time as well. Um, what many Germans woke up to when the Russian invasion of Ukraine took place was that perhaps actually um, Merkel's relationship with the Russian government was not the best way to have handled that relationship over the years. Um, and that was a really big reckoning for many Germans because um, previously Germany was really big on uh, trying to change Russia through engagement. And, uh, and that turned out to perhaps have been a mistake. Um, so many key um, moments of the last, you know, two decades, like um, the the war in Georgia in 2008 or the invasion of Crimea in 2014, are now seen in a different light in Germany. So um, while Angela Merkel um, is still very respected as a former chancellor, um, when you look at opinion polling, actually a lot of people don't want her back, which is interesting given that um, Olaf Scholz is not very popular. So you could think that it's obvious that perhaps they want the previous chancellor back, but actually it seems that maybe they want something different altogether. Really interesting. And Arisia, how much does this matter for Ukraine and so on, the, the, the complexity of Germany's position? There's, there's one legacy of Merkel, which is, of course, Minsk protocols and something that uh, she ha very passionately tried to settle this at uh, that time we called conflict. But it, that turned out to be a debacle. You know, we published quite extensive paper on Minsk conundrum that basically was imposing limited sovereignty on Ukraine. And that is important to remember as Ukrainians are being urged as soon as possible to come to negotiating table because they had this experience 
experience of almost eight years, Russians trying to abuse and manipulate international law and agreements to its advantage, and actually hoping that Berlin and Paris would push Kiev to uh, its own reading, to Kremlin's reading of those agreements. I think Germany needs to definitely step up. Countries like Estonia donated almost 1% of its GDP in military assistance, and I think perception of Germany in Ukraine will improve, I'm sure, but it's still not up to the expectations to defend this freedom uh, and, and democratic values that I think majority of German society stands for. And Ed, I just wanted, we had David Lamy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, talking here at Chatham House this week, and he was putting a lot of weight on uh, alliances and uh, new pacts and the role for Britain, particularly in, in kind of European security. I did say to him, you know, where's the money? As our allies might be saying, there's lots and lots of talk about relationships. But I wondered whether you thought Britain had, and what Britain's role might be. In this. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. It's all about money. And when people are talking at the moment in terms of transformation, it's all about defense policy, not necessarily also investing money in foreign policy and relationships, uh, which really matter. And I think the UK is, you know, adapting its strategy that was set out in the integrated review. I mean, the integrated review got... Um, you know, in terms of your Atlantic security, Russia being the most acute threat was right, but very little on the detail. So at the moment, it's looking at the sort of the detail and almost playing what's in front of it. Um, you know, highlight joint expeditionary force activity, which is a UK-led framework of 10 Nordic and Baltic nations, lot more bilateral uh, agreements, especially with Estonia, and also tri- new trilateral Poland, Ukraine. So if you sort of colour all of these nations in on a map, you can see very much where where the UK priorities are. Um, I think for the UK, it needs to sort of balance, prioritise a little better and also understand what its contribution is in sort of air, land, maritime domain. Um, And the issue that all European nations are finding in defence policy realms is that post-Cold War, I mean, a lot of their militaries for war fighting are hollowed out. A focus on uh, crisis management operations for 20 years has really hurt the ability for all nations to modernise. So while we sometimes focus on Germany saying that they're hollowed out, I think it is really important to note that all European nations are facing similar problems. And a really good perspective. Uh, we're hearing that obviously a lot in the UK at the moment. Exactly that phrase, hollowed out from military chiefs and former chiefs. Jeremy, I wonder if you could just wrap all this up with us. And I was referring before to the US's um, frustration, exasperation, even with um, European defence spending or the lack of it. Do you think that that US um, frustration, you've been able to hear these calls for years and years, decades even, but is that finally going to have an effect? I have to say the events of the last week don't fill me with optimism. I mean, the, 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 the whole question of the leopards was a great opportunity for Europe to act on its own, to show that it can step up on, in security terms. The US has to date, as as previously mentioned, um, given far more aid to Ukraine than, than, than the Europeans. And this was a chance on a topic that the Europeans could dominate, you know, the, the tanks that are mostly held in Europe by and decided by a German, but by, by, by you know, Europe's anchor state, Germany, to come together and do that. And, and, and it didn't. And Germany insisted on on, on Europe. US involvement. I mean, also, by the way, implicit in Schultz's insistence was, I thought, a, a sort of casting of doubt on collective defence and Article 5, because his whole argument was, if the US don't send tanks to them, we'll be at greater risk from um, some sort of attack from Russia. So I, I, I really think that this could have been a great opportunity for Europe to show, you know, show itself and show America that it, that it can do more. And of course, these matters bear on American politics. There is a strong America first element in, in, in the US. We don't know where the next presidential election will go. Um, and I think 
I mean, hopefully this 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 this, this tanks deal will be the start of of, of Europe stepping up more. I, I know that the Europeans are thinking in terms of more in terms of helping Ukraine um, recover economically from the war if if and when a peace is is ever reached. Um, so I think they they're willing to play a leadership role there, but it has it has to apply to the military side too. Um, and I guess I just finished by saying, you know, this this is a Chatham House podcast. So, you know, the better the relations between the UK and, and the EU and, and partners like Germany and France, the more likely that is to happen. Because I think although Britain's influence has um, diminished in the last few years, it has shown a, a sense of initiative on Ukraine that some of its European counterparts have lacked. So I think better relations across the channel can help that broader picture as well. Thank you for that. And we are indeed in favour of such things. A half-formed joke about leopards not changing their spots is flitting through my mind, but I'm going to spare you all that because that is the end of our recording. So a huge thank you to my guests, Jeremy Cliff from The New Statesman, Ed Arnold from Rusi, and my colleagues from Chatham House, Arisia and Marion, whose writing and research can be found both here at Chatham House and uh, on Twitter. All of our guests are on Twitter. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or major providers and platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask that. We always like to get them, whatever you say. And to read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of our Ukraine forum, our international security program, and can pick up the David Lammy speech that I talked about and the lively conversation and loads of questions that followed. That's all for now. Auf Wiedersehen from myself and my colleagues. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.